what if now was the point where Ryan, I revealed to you the person I've been hosting this show with for like, I don't know, two and a half, three years that I have like a 17 year old son and I read comics to him. I would be bath. so excited and confused, Tucker. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, uh, listeners never going to hear that joke. You're listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale January 12th, 2022. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, Tucker Marcus. Uh, This is the penultimate episode of the official Tucker Marcus era (laughs) of Marvel's Pull List. Uh, If anybody out there who listens to This Week in Marvel, you'll know we've talked about it. I don't know if you've put it out publicly much, but here you are, Tucker. Tell them what's going on. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm... I will be concluding my days from the Humble House of Ideas, wrapping up my time as associate editor for Marvel.com. And with that comes uh, the closing bell of my time co-hosting Marvel's pull list full time. But, uh, you know, I'm planning on being much more of the college grad who just kind of wears a flannel uh, and hangs around and asks the students where the parties are at this weekend than a complete and total deserter. So, um, but anyway, that's that's more talk for next week. Regardless. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into it more next week for your last official episode. Next week will be a fun one. Um, look, they're all fun. We have fun here because this is the official Marvel podcast for Marvel Comics. We tell you all about the brand new Marvel Comics on sale every week. We tell you what's hitting Marvel Unlimited, including the new Infinity Comics. We tell you what collections are out, and we even do a reading club of a comic book storyline with a special guest. Tucker, who's our special guest on this episode? This week, we are very, very lucky to talk to TV and film critic, legendary uh, critic Alan Seppenwall of Rolling Stone and so many other uh, incredible publications throughout his storied career. Uh, Alan is a huge, huge comic book fan, and we will be reading what I thought was a great, great like this is exactly what reading clubs are meant to be just finding a gem like this one that people love maybe they haven't read before um but it is just the best in so many different ways we're reading immortal iron fist from 2006 we're reading the first arc of that story but really talking about it as we uh, often do talking about it as a whole absolutely incredible uh ed brew baker early matt fraction stuff david aha um incredible incredible book that i had so much fun reading And we had a great time talking with Alan about. And Tucker, before we get into this week's top picks, uh, we got to remind everyone about the big X-Men election that's going on right now. Break it down for us. That's right, folks. If you're listening when this episode comes out, voting for the new member of the X-Men team closes on Thursday, January 13th. So head over to Marvel.com right now and make your selection. You will choose between Armor. Avalanche, Bling, Firestar, Gentle, Gorgon, Micromax, Penance, Siren, and Surge. Who is your choice? Who will you be casting your vote for? Go over to Marvel.com and make your pick now. It's your duty. You know, I really wish we had a write-in candidate here because it's my birthday. <laughs> I was very 13th. And I think everyone should write in. 
and give a vote for Peepers because Peepers is the character that deserves to be on the X-Men. I, look, I love all these candidates. I'm probably going to vote Gorgon. But, you know, if I had my choice, it would be Peepers 2022. <laughs> and with that in mind, let's get into those picks. We've got three picks of the week. We're going to start off with Marauders number 27. This is the final issue of this era of Marauders. It is written by Jerry Duggan, art by Matteo Loli and Phil Noto, colors by Rain Barreto and Phil, letters by VC's Corey Pettit. And it's it's so hard to say goodbye mm-hmm. to um, a team. We know uh, stunning Steve Orlando is coming on to write the Marauders. Well, we got the annual coming up soon, and then um, we, we got the new number one after that. But this is a way for Jerry to wrap up a whole bunch of things in the stories that he's been putting together. You have great art by Matteo and Phil throughout all this. Fiery Phil Noto, I just adore him as a person and as an artist. In here, he gets to do some really uh, great scenes with the Marauders, with Emma, with some folks taking new positions in Hellfire Trading, in the Marauders. We get maybe the best undercover duo uh, in Marvel Comics right now with Pyro and Bishop as (laughs) undercover Australian super criminals who have stolen uh, helicarriers. And it is wonderful. It is really a whole lot of fun. Lots of little bits and pieces in here. I don't want to give anything away because it does do a great job of wrapping things up. And I don't want to mention characters who have really unique um, roles to play in this issue. But this issue is is full of wonderful stuff that you've come to know and love for Marauders. It's funny. It leaves a whole bunch there that you go, oh, man, what is that going to lead to? Especially the last page. The last page here, I will just say the last page involves Kate Pride. And the big question around Kate and and her ability to phase through things and how that has been part of her journey on Krakoa where she can't go through the gates. And there's this whole section that goes into that. I'm, I'm very excited for how that picks up at some point because knowing the, the team making the X-Men books that will get addressed at some point, but thank you very much, Jerry Duggan and crew for these wonderful, wonderful issues. Absolutely here, here, 100% agree. The only thing I, I disagree with you on, mm. Ryan, is Steve Orlando's nickname isn't stunning Steve Orlando. It's actually Ryan Panagos actor's mirror exercise. <laughs> uh, Steve, Steve Orlando, uh, Ryan Panagos, long lost twins, Steve Orlando. Go back and give the Steve Orlando Reading Club uh, a listen, folks, if you don't know exactly what I mean. But anyway. Um, very excited for the future of Marauders and so grateful for that incredible run. I'm looking over at my pick of this week, though. Daredevil, Woman Without Fear, number one. It's written, of course, by Daredevil master Chip Zdarsky with art by Rafael de la Torre, colors by Federico Blee, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Some beautiful variant covers available for this one. Check them out. Talk about being grateful. I'm so, so happy that we have had an entire run of Daredevil where Elektra has just played such a fascinating part, such a crucial part, but not in this way that just thrust her into the spotlight, put her center stage right from issue number one, and it was just like, sort of, here's your cast of characters, and and she's a supporting character, yada, 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 which I'm sure would have been great in that theoretical world. Instead, we got this thing that energetically feels 
so right for Electra Nachos, which was she was sort of slipping in and out of Matt Murdock's radar, in in and out of our radar. She was here when we least expected her, and then she would disappear into the shadows when we thought she was going to stick around for good. Um, and then right at the perfect moment, she returned and took the cowl, you know, and became the became the horned hero, became Daredevil. And what was really fascinating about this issue for me was this isn't a really plotty issue like you might expect, especially given everything that's going on in Devil's Reign. You know, you 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 look at a uh, an Electra titled book and you would say, oh, OK, this is probably a tie in what she's doing underground, what she's doing to fight Wilson Fisk, given everything that's going on in Devil's Reign. And, and that's going to be great. But this is actually a much more sort of experimental tone poem of an issue uh, than anything else. It's it's sort of an homage to the character. And it's also kind of the perfect Electro intro book as well, because it does so much with uh, just great swiftness and concision to flash back to crucial points in Electra's life story to show us how she became the warrior, the person she is today. So um, I, I really, really loved this issue. Uh, and I think this is one of those that's like, I don't think many writers could come to the editorial team and say, this is what I want to do with this issue. It takes a writer that has been putting in the work for years at this point, And that has the implicit trust, I think of, of everyone involved where they just go, okay, we trust chip. We trust him to do this right. And boy, oh boy, did he. Heck yeah. All right. One more pick this week. And come on, y'all. You knew it come was going to be come Savage on. Avengers. <laughs> number 28, the final. I, did hate, I hate having to say <laughs> the final issue of this run of Savage Avengers. Uh, honestly, probably one of my favorite comics we've ever published. If you're if mm-hmm. looking at it as a complete package of these two and a half years or whatever it is. I will go down as one of my favorite Marvel comics of all time. It is written by Jerry Duggan, art by Patch Zercher, colors by Hava Tartaglia, and letters by VC's Travis Lanham. If you've been following us talk about this book, it's been amazing. It is about a team of warriors in the Marvel Universe, side by side with Conan the Barbarian, fighting a nightmare magician, Kulin Goth, who murders everyone. The end. He murders everyone <laughs> across time. And it is only through the intervention of Conan the Barbarian and Kang the Conqueror that somehow good prevails. And that that has sort of been the the like long story that has been going on this whole time. I, I, you know, like I sit back and think about it. How often do we get to bask in a story that gets to build and simmer and crest and and play out? as this has, especially one that involves pretty much every corner of the Marvel Universe and Conan the Barbarian and Shuma Garoth and Kulin Goth, and it is vicious and full of exploding bodies and severed limbs, and this book truly is one of my favorite things. I've told Jerry Duggan this multiple times. I will scream this to the heavens. If you've not read Savage Avengers, do yourself a favor. Get on board on all this, and then you can read it as one complete storyline. This this chapter 28 is just called Coda, and after, especially the last couple of issues, which has, have included 
dozens of characters. It's spanned thousands and thousands and thousands of years. This is a very tight story. It mostly features Conan the Barbarian, Kulin Goth, and Kang the Conqueror. There are a couple other characters who show up, but really it's about the core three there and how they all fit together and, and what they all mean to their own stories, to their past, their present, their future. Um, it is beautifully rendered by Patch, who's done, and, and Jerry mentions this in his like goodbye letter, who's done the work of his life. Um, Patch is a brilliant draftsman and, and does great, just wonderful storytelling. There's sections in here where you see Conan, you know, working with his sword and, and showing off how to properly wield a blade. And it's it's simple stuff, but it is so well paced and it, it's very effective. It is clean. Um, there's a, a couple moments in here where Conan smiles and that is a very effective thing because you don't normally see that. He's never he, he doesn't often show joy uh, or, or, you know, he's not pleased with things because he's friggin Conan. But there's reason for it in here. There's a warmth to this issue. Um, there's a, a bit of horror in here. There is, uh, for me, I got to the end and I went, oh, man. And I, I like legitimately got sad, not just for the ending of that the series was over, which, yes, that did make me sad. But like there's a point in here where I was like, that's the end of that. But then there's one more final wave lifting me up right at the end. And I was like, damn it. They got me one more time. I left this book with a giant smile on my face. It is truly a, a magical piece of Marvel Universe history that I am so glad we got to do. Kudos to everyone who worked on this. God, I, just the fact that we've had this for these, this long makes mm -hmm. me so damn happy. He said it all, folks. I mean, I I don't know what else you can add to that. Like the, the guy who's read thousands and thousands and thousands of Marvel comics. Forget about Lifetime. Just in the past, however many, 15 years or whatever, whatever it's been for you, um, every book, every week, <laughs> it says a lot that that enters the, the Hall of Fame. It's funny for me, having done so many shows with you over the last four plus years, um, to see which ones have like entered that hallowed ground. You know what I mean? Like War of the Realms was there for you. Savage Avengers, which no coincidence, sort of came out of War of the Realms, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is really cool. And now, now it's there. Um, it's like the right ratio. I love it. I love that they're like, I can really only think of two series out of all the ones that we've talked about forever that are like that, that, that level. Um, because we read some, some incredible stuff. So that really says a lot. Anyway, yeah, I'm done waxing lyrical about that and no more talk about what has entered the Ryan Penagos Hall of Fame, except for the Ryan Penagos Hall of Fame award, which we shall be giving out this week to every single fresh floppy on the way. Uh, and we will be kicking it off with Amazing Spider-Man number 85. This has that feeling for me of just like classic, classic Marvel comics. It gives me that warm feeling inside that I get if I just pick out a random back issue and go and read it on Marvel Unlimited where I just feel like I can bask in the art, the energy, the vibe, the feeling. I'm going to give my Ryan Penagos Hall of Fame award, though, to Cody Ziegler, writer Cody mm. Ziegler, because I think like we saw in 2016-17 when Donny Cates started writing that incredible uh, arc 
on Thanos. And then basically in terms of his work at the House of Ideas, obviously he did some incredible stuff elsewhere. At the House of Ideas became like an overnight superstar. I'm calling it. I think Cody's work on ASM has been absolutely stellar. He was, I think, handpicked by the likes of Zeb Wells, with whom he worked on on some other projects. And Zeb said, hey, I think this Cody guy's got the goods. Let's bring him in. And boy, he was just so, so right. Uh, so I think looking into the future, we will have a lot, a lot more uh, star action from Cody. Hell yeah. Up next is Dark Ages number four by a wonderful duo of uh, Yvonne Coelho and Tom Taylor and the crew. And it is just, it is full of high energy. You got Nightcrawler bamfing around, Storm being awesome and smooching her love to Chala and their kid shows up and there's sadness and there's excitement and there's, there's all kinds of fun stuff happening. And then someone gets uh, harpooned through the chest and you're like, ah, of course it's a Tom Taylor book. We're going to see someone <laughs> just get brutally hurt horribly. But my Ryan Panago's hall of fame award goes to the scene in which Giant Man rises up out of the water riding Fin Fang Foom. Come on. I love it so much. Whew. All right, next up we have Dark Hawk number five, uh, which wraps up this turn with Dark Hawk. Um, I've been involved behind the scenes with a bunch of interviews that Kyle Higgins, the writer of this series, has been doing with various experts, doctors, um, and people in the multiple sclerosis community in various ways, interviewing them uh, about their experiences with MS, about this this new character that has been so central to uh, this era of Dark Hawk history. Um, and you can really, really tell alongside Kyle, editor Darren Shan, uh, assistant editor Kat Gregorowitz, and, and, and so many other folks have been really, really paying close attention to making this making this a story that um, is portrayed authentically and done in the right way. Uh, and that is uh, just been a huge amount of effort that I really, really applaud them for. I think it comes through in the final product. So go out and uh, pick up these uh, five issues of Darkhawk. Hell yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to Death of Doctor Strange. We're getting closer to the final piece of this. We know some lot of stuff is, is happening uh, in the world of magic right now, uh, but this issue sees uh, us focus on Bloodstone. So it's Death of Doctor Strange, Bloodstone number one. It's not just Elsa Bloodstone, though she is the coolest of all. There's Cullen Bloodstone, and this issue introduces Lyra Bloodstone, a third bloodstone child she has a great origin it really fits in there's a um you, you kind of like see how it works and it feels very natural i think i will give my ryan panagos uh hall of fame award for this issue to the sibling dynamics going on here which as someone who only really came to know his siblings my siblings uh, in my 20s um i understand like being introduced to family members you didn't really know, but then immediately like connecting. And, you know, I, I have those, those same feelings. So I, I like that. I think that is, is um, really produced very well by Teeny Howard and company in this issue. Absolutely. Next up, we have Devil's Reign Superior for number one. This is almost one of my picks of the week. I had a ball with this um, because it's a very, very simple and delightful and glorious and wonderfully weird premise. It is 
a multiverse of Otto Octavii uh, uh, coming together and getting involved in all the Devil's Reign business in, in NYC. We have Otto Banner, we have Otto Blaze, we have Otto Howlett, and we, of course, have Otto Octavius. One or two others might pop up in this issue, of course. There are plenty of limbs to go around. It is just a delight. It's written by Zach Thompson, who I think is having the time of his life here. Uh, my Ryan Panagas Hall of Fame award, though, goes to David Tinto, who I think really, really crushes on the art here. It's a really, really nice looking issue. Shout out as well to editor Annalise Bissa who cast this book, obviously, and it's just one of those that feels right. The story, the art, the characters that feel like they're all perfectly, perfectly done together. So uh, looking forward to the future of Superior 4. Indeed. All right, we've got Fantastic Four number 39, which could have been one of my picks of the week. It's a super strong issue. Dan Slott uh, doing great work, as he has been. This one really focuses on the fate of Bentley 23, AKA the uh, the clone of the wizard and and um, you have the the original wizard coming in and trying to say hey you know he he belongs to me and we find out the machinations behind everything all that being said I want to give my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award to again the family interactions in here especially the way that the uh, the various members of the extended Fantastic Four family show that. They are loving family units. They are good parents. And there are children that are loved and protected, even amidst, you know, all the nightmare horror stuff that comes with being, you know, part of the Fantastic Four, especially last issue where everything felt like it was going terribly, terribly wrong in the, the court case here. I won't say everything goes right, but it is it is handled beautifully. Uh, and I, I got to give a special bonus award to the judge, Judge Payne, who has been introduced, I believe introduced in the storyline. I don't remember seeing her previously, but she's terrific. And one of my favorite new characters of the recent times. Nice. Uh, next up, we have Hawkeye Kate Bishop, number three. By the way, folks, did we mention that there are a ton of books this yeah, week? Yeah, there's like 42 books. <laughs> yeah. I think there's 20. There's a million books this week. Yeah. Uh, like, I think we're barely halfway through, uh, which is always great. Anyway, um, I'm talking now about Hawkeye Kate Bishop, number three. Uh, I just think the premise of this um, series so far has just been spot on with Kate Bishop. It's Take Kate. Um, who is this the perfect sort of like I, I think of Indiana Jones when it comes to just characters who are just like thrown into a crazy situation, making it up as they go, doing their best and like a wall will fall down and miss them luckily five times in a minute. And that's just the way things go anyway, uh, putting Kate in this uncomfortable situation in a very specific setting here has been so much fun. My Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award though goes to colorist uh, Brittany Peer, who I think does a really, really nice job in here. There's some really beautiful, rich colors uh, that I think help tell the story in a really great way. Speaking of amazing colors, I want to give a shout out to colorist Matthew Wilson on our next book, King Conan number two. It is this book about an older Conan who in, at this point is shipwrecked he is forced to fight and maybe team up with one of his mortal enemies, Thoth Amon, uh, which sounds like an awesome black metal band, but it is actually a really nasty sorcerer. But I want to give my Ryan Panagos uh, Hall of Fame award to a three-page sequence in here, which is drawn and colored 
by artist Mahmoud Asrar, and it is these single-page, big, beautiful splash pages showing um, different adventures or things that Conan has done uh, set against the conversation that Conan is having with his son, Khan, and telling, basically telling Khan, you got to get out there. You got to live your life. You got to figure out who you are in this world. You can't be coddled. You can't be, you know, treated like the son of a king, even though you are. That's not how I got here. That's not how I'm going to let you get to this place. Get out there. Go have lots of sex. Make lots of money. <laughs> drink lots of things. Kill lots of enemies. Do all that stuff is basically the gist of it. And it's a great sequence. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Nice. Next up, we have Marvel's Voices Heritage number one, uh, which is another excellent entry in the Marvel's Voices series of books. Uh, This one is comprised of four stories. So many talented people involved in here. Some really, really excellent stories. I really enjoyed that Snowguard story in particular. Uh, just it feels like the perfect balance of being a really youthful character, youthful story, a little bit creepy, a very, very interesting. So much to dig into there. I hope we continue to see more and more of Snowguard. Um, my Ryan Panagas Hall of Fame award goes to the editorial team here because there is so much work to be done on an anthology book like this. So shout out to Anita Okoye, Sarah Brunstad, um, consulting editor Angelique Rocher, on everybody involved behind the scenes because uh, this is a great final product. We've got Ms. Marvel Beyond the Limit number two up next. And uh, this one is is real interesting because I don't know where they're taking this. I haven't asked what the sort of like what comes out of this Ms. Marvel book, but it feels big. It feels like this is this is a key Ms. Marvel story for the characters, you know, past, present, and future. Uh, in it, she's she's going through some a rough patch. Her powers are funky. Um, she's having these weird visions. She's having um, some trouble in Jersey City because there's someone who looks and seems like her, that which is doing some nasty stuff. So I will give my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award to a great cliffhanger last page because it's got me going, all right, when's the next issue? I want to know where we're going. Next ish we have this week is another Spidey entry. It's Spider-Woman number 18. Talk about one of our favorite books mm-hmm. in recent times. Um, this is a Devil's Reign tie-in, which is so much fun. And what's really great here, it was sort of unexpected, is writer Carla Pacheco, who I know will have relished this opportunity, gets to play with the big boys, the big toys. It is, in this issue, we're seeing Jess Drew throw down with... Wilson Fisk himself. It is just so much fun. When you take those two characters who I think their physicality is so different, the way they fight is so different, the way they go about solving a problem like somebody running at them with their fists (laughs) clenched is so different. And when we have artist Pere Perez uh, tackling that problem, oh man, you know you're going to get some great, great results. So shout out to the creative team here. Um, Just two of the best in the biz. Ryan Panagos, Hall of Fame Award to Carla and Perry. Yeah. All right, it is time to take you to uh, Once Upon a Time in a World Far Away. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And there's a droid named Stu. And uh, no, we're talking about Star Wars. We've got three Star Wars issues for you. We've got Star Wars number 20. Uh, this one is, it's cool. It's creepy. We've got Luke on his quest to learn more about being a Jedi. This is the storyline that takes place between Empire and Jedi. It leads into some very interesting and cool background on the Jedi 
and and moments that remind me of when he's training on Dagobah and the, the like when he goes and he sees the cave and the weird helmet explosion and all the cool creepy stuff from from the original trilogy it kind of harkens back to that so i will give my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award to the the really creepy sequence especially towards the end there's a page that's almost all red black and yellow and it is it is gnarly it's really cool I'm going to give you another Star Wars hit of goodness with Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 20. In this issue, we're obviously following a lot of Bounty Hunters, but my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award goes to the uh, the sort of camaraderie brotherhood. I don't know that they have genders <laughs> specifically uh, or like just connection between Bounty Hunters Forlom and Zuckus. And how that plays out in this story, what that means for those characters and the lengths that they go to to kind of be with each other. It is really sweet in in the midst of like of like really messed up gnarled bodies and blaster fire and all kinds of other stuff. So um, this one is pretty neat. Very, very good. I'm wrapping up Star Wars now with Star Wars, The High Republic, Eye of the Storm, number one. It is such a great moment for people who grew up on the Star Wars Expanded Universe and talking about an era like the High Republic finally getting its canonical due with so much effort, so much work put into these stories. I think of this issue, though, as sort of what was like kind of chapter two after the Dawn of X in the Marvel Universe because we had House and Powers, then we had Dawn of X, where it was a new day for the X-Men. Everything was bright and shiny and happy. New beginning, new home. And then... Things went wrong. Things started to crumble in very subtle, smart ways. I think that is the story that's being told here by Charles Soule and company. I want to give the Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award to editor Danny Kazemp because he is just the best. Seeing his name over in the Star Wars books is delightful. Very, very excited and happy for him that he's working on something that I know he really enjoys. And this is a perfect example of him bringing the team together and telling a very fascinating story. Yeah. All right, we've got issue three of The Thing. This is a throwback storyline taking place years ago in Ben Grimm's storyline. Um, this has been a really cool, weird series with trips underground. And actually, things take a, a another strange and fun turn this issue, um, which leads to my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award, which I am breaking over my knee, cracking it in two. <laughs> and I am giving half of it to the appearance and the battle between The Thing and and the champion of the universe, the elder who shows up and fights Ben Grimm in this issue. There's a really great sequence, uh, one in which the uh, champion does a German suplex to Ben Grimm, which is a is a wrestling aficionado. And the way that Tom Riley, the artist, depicts it in here is so good. I love seeing wrestling moves really done well in comics and movies. So half of it goes to this the appearance in the battle with the champion. The other half goes to Tom Riley, the artist on the issue, who is, good lord, just freaking amazing in here. And especially, you know what? I have to give it to Tom and Jordy. Jordy Belair, the colorist. Mm -hmm. It is a beautiful issue. You get the feeling of weight that Ben carries with him every single time he shows up. And it's his damn book, so it's most of the issue. Great job. Very, very nice. My final issue this week arrives in the form of Wastelanders Black Widow, number one. Uh, another great 
entry in the Wastelanders series of stories that we've been reading in recent weeks and months. I've been having so much fun with it. One of my favorite settings in the entire Marvel multiverse. There's so much space between the Natasha Romanoff that we know and love and where she's at in this story. So getting to explore what's happened to her as a character, getting to explore what's going on uh, in her mind, how she's dealing with, uh, you know, the day the villains won and all of that is really, really fascinating. I think there's some great character work going on in here, but talking about that art, wow, it is a gorgeous issue. So like you, Ryan, I'm going to be passing out the uh, Ryan Panagos uh, Hall of Fame Award to artist and colorist on this one, Welby and Mattia Yacono, who just absolutely crush it. There's some beautiful, beautiful monster work in here. Great fight choreography. It's all in here. Check it out. Hell yeah. All right, let's wrap things up for these new issues this week with X-Men Legends number 10. Um, oh, man, this one got me. Uh, that Legend series is sort of bringing back classic X-Men creators telling tales featuring characters set in whatever creators were doing at, at given times. Um, this story takes place during the events of X-Men number 34 from that would have been like 1993-ish, somewhere around there. It is focused around Mr. Sinister having a dinner party, which right there, you need a reason to read it. Mr. Sinister, <laughs> dinner party. His guests include The Beast, Professor Xavier, Magneto, Moira, and even Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb. I don't want to give anything away. So my Ryan Panagos Hall of Fame award goes to a moment in this issue, probably like halfway through, where things just start going sideways. All right, that's what we have for new comics on sale uh, Wednesday January 12th, 2022. Now looking over to new Infinity Comics coming to the Marvel Unlimited app. Go check them out. Some really, really exciting stuff happening over there every single week. And this week we're looking at X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic number 17. And we also have Spider-Bot Infinity Comic number 6. So much fun over there. Yeah, and also on MU, lots of great stuff in there this week. Amazing Spider-Man number 75, Dark Ages number 2, Daredevil Black, White, and Blood number 3, New Mutants Excalibur, there's, uh, ooh, Eternals Celestia. Yes, get you some Eternals. Yes, and now wrapping it up with new collections on sale this week. We have Daredevil by Chip Zdarsky, Volume 7, Lockdown. We have Shang-Chi by Gene Luan Yang, uh, Volume 2, Shang-Chi versus the Marvel Universe. Both Gene and this era of Shang-Chi are some of my favorite things I can think of, uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff as per usual. Mm -hmm. All right, that is uh, a whole lot of good stuff for you. Speaking of good stuff... It is time for our reading club. We are talking about Immortal Iron Fist by uh, Matt Fraction and Brubaker and David Aha. Uh, Matt Hollingsworth, Chris Eliopoulos, uh, the whole creative team deserves love and cheers because it's a damn good book. And you'll find out why when we talk about it with Alan Seppenwall right now. Folks, joining us today is one of the uh, finest critics and writers around. But today we are getting his critical eye on the immortal Iron Fist. Welcome, Alan Seppenwall. Thank you for joining us, dude. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I didn't realize we were going deep critical with this one, Tucker, but I, I'm <laughs> for it. I want to hear everybody's hot takes on uh, David Aha's 
freaking great work. Oh my god, oh, it's so beautiful. Good. Oh, I had almost forgotten how much David has grown as an artist and how 2000 what is this 2006 ish 2006 2007 David is just like still destroying everyone around him but so clearly like finding his voice as an artist there's this one like double page uh spread in i think the fifth or the sixth issue of this arc where it's danny and orson randall fighting back to back and you get like these little insert shots of every single move that danny is doing and like i just want the poster version of that it you know it makes me salivate looking at it yeah it's it's pretty incredible stuff it all right, look, I'm going to stop myself there. We'll get into the weeds very, very shortly. <laughs> Alan, as I like to kick things off um, with a bunch of interviews, what's your history with comics? Um, when did you start reading? When did you did you start going to your local comic shop just for the context behind this? Okay, so I just turned 48 yesterday, and I've been reading comics for a long time. And my early, some of my earliest memories of my father is he would put me in the bath and he would read me a comic book. I guess that was his way of getting me to take a bath. <laughs> and so the earliest comics I remember, one was Justice League number 100, but the one that really sticks out is Avengers 183, which is the Avengers versus the Absorbing Man. And so those are kind of always my Avengers, like my two favorite characters in Marvel, or at least my favorite pairing in Marvel is Wonder Man and the Beast. I've always loved those dudes so much. And so I read comics off and on as a kid, but I didn't really start going to the comic shop until 85, 86. It was sometime after Secret Wars. And I think around the time that like West Coast Avengers had launched, because again, I will read anything that Wonder Man is in, even though most Wonder Man stories are bad. It's sort of, he's my problematic <laughs> fave where I love the idea of him and I almost <laughs> never love what people do with him. Um, so that's around the time I started buying. And so this was also a period when I think Jim Owsley, as Christopher Priest was calling himself back then, was writing Power Man and Iron Fist. And so I read that run with him and Mark Bright. Uh, really loved those. And just a lot of titles. And I've collected off and on ever since. And I have turned both of my kids onto it. And you know, usually when my son and I go out on walks during the pandemic, it will inevitably turn into like me explaining some you know, retcon or some like inconsistency he has found in some story or other. Awesome. So with getting your children into it, how many comics have you ruined in the bathtub with them <laughs> trying to coerce them into to the reading at bath time? Not as many. Um, you know, I mean, they're old enough now that, you know, I'm not in the bath anymore. <laughs> but um, in a lot of cases, he will just read, my son will read stuff on the app. But I do have a whole bunch of short boxes, a few dozen of them. Uh, in the room next to the one I'm in right now. It's probably not the best place in the house for it to be because it's like, it's the room where the hot water heater is and the HVAC system, but it's like literally the only place we had space for it. So at a certain point, the comics will fall apart, but I've read them all so often and he's read a lot of them so much that they've, you know, they have served their purpose well. Uh, Alan, were you reading this run as it was coming out or is this one you picked up later on? This, this I picked up later on. Uh, sometime after I had kids, I basically stopped buying weekly issues. Like, I had a pull list for, you know, almost two decades. And at a certain point, I realized, like, A, this is, like, I don't have time to keep going to the shop. But also, it felt like the way the industry was moving, most of the stories were being written as arcs to begin with. So I would just be better off waiting for the trade. So I'm, I'm that guy. Uh, and so at a certain point, I actually picked up 
uh, a trade of the entire Fraction Brubaker run on this title. The 16 issues plus, you know, the assorted specials and stuff. Um, and it's one of my favorite things. And in fact, I was frustrated in prepping for this that I couldn't find it. And I think I loaned it to one of the kids and they never gave it back to me. Uh, but fortunately, there are apps for that. So I was able to reread the issues that way. Nice. Yeah, this had just started when I started at Marvel right around this time. And um, it was edited. Myrtle Iron Fist was edited by one of my close friends, Alejandro Arbona, who I'm texting with to try to get any juicy tidbits or fun <laughs> um, details specifically because, I, you know, you look at the credits. It's written by Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction, which is great. Um, it's sort of one of Matt's earliest Marvel books. Um, it's art by David as the like the main uh, artist on the uh, the present day sequences. But then you have a whole bunch of flashback and side story pieces by Travel Foreman, Russ Heath, John Severin, Sal Buscema. And I was like, you know, when you going back to it, it was like this wave of amazing nostalgia and memories and also like how the hell did they do this how do you get that group of artists because um you know maybe to a, a modern comic reader who's just like i've just read king and black and and maybe i only like you know certain really big high profile current marvel books but you go back and like russ heath is like a legend in in a certain time period in marvel comics um i mean sabu sema is everybody's got no sabu sema if you don't know sabu sema I, I don't even I don't know how to talk to you, uh, but and John Severin, like all these amazing artists, I want to learn more about that. So hopefully I'll get some tidbits from uh, from Alejandro on this. Um, but do you do you remember specifically if there was like a cover um, or, or something else that really like grabbed you like that that sparked that thing to get this book? I'm trying, no, I think it was more just my fondness for Iron Fist. And it's another one sort of like Wonder Man where I like the idea of Iron Fist much more than I tend to like the way he has been used in comics. Like, I was always more of a Power Man guy to begin with. You may be able to see I'm wearing a Luke Cage t-shirt right now. Um, And so, you know, Iron Fist was kind of the straight man sidekick. But, you know, once an issue, his fist would become like unto a thing of iron. And that would be cool. And so I like that, but this really, I just thought, all right, well, they're doing something new. The cover of the trade looked cool, and and I gave it a shot. And the thing about them being able to get those artists, I know very little about the making of the book, but it feels to me like the period stuff that Brubaker and Fraction was doing, like, would really appeal to some of these old school guys like Heath and Sal, just because it's like, hey, I get to do pulpy things, or I get to go way back, you know, to you know ancient Chinese dynasties. Uh, it was really exciting. The weirdest thing that I found in in prepping for this was, I assume just based on everything Matt Fraction has done since then, that the bulk of the like ideas behind the mythology and everything else in the book was his. And no, this was an Ed Brubaker pitch, and Brubaker was just writing like seventeen titles at the time and couldn't do the full writing job on it. And so he brought in, like, young Matt Fraction to help him with it. But it feels so much more like Fraction than, like, Brubaker. Don't, don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially if you're, you're thinking about what, especially what Ed is doing at the time, you know, in, in particular, Captain America. And, and the tone of that book. And then you think, yeah, Matt, this, this definitely feels like a, a Fraction title if you were just going to, like, pick one of the two. But I love that, that little tidbit. That's really cool. Yep, I mean, you know, we think of Ed as like the pulpy guy and the hard-boiled guy, and yet he really 
gave all this thought to the mythology of Iron Fist and the idea of, well, wait, you know, there had to have been others. What were they like? And just the exploring of that was really exciting to me. Well, I mean, you think also, I, I just got another copy in of it, so it's top of mind, but the Marvel's Project, which is very much about the mythology of the the Marvel superheroes in the universe is, you know, one of Ed's projects. And so, like, I think that's just how his brain works in, like, building some of this cool mythology for this big world. It works really yeah. well. I mean, I suppose, like, if you're the guy who was finally, after decades and decades, able to convince Marvel Editorial to bring Bucky back to life, you have to have a certain degree of, like, knowledge of and affection for Marvel history to do it. So, in that sense, it doesn't surprise me. Just sort of, I guess, tonally, and in some of, like, the sci-fi fantasy elements of it, it definitely feels more like a fraction thing. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's so interesting about reading this is, I mean specifically about reading it in 2021 and knowing what we know now about like the writer that, like you said, Alan, a young Matt Fraction then goes on to become. It's interesting to put it in that context because now it looks like the greatest all-stars of Marvel Comics in the 21st century, you know, writing this book. But in 2006, I don't really have that context. Ryan, what was the general vibe more you know, around Fraction, was he more of a, the kind of young up and comer? Was he well established as, you know, a sort of Marvel all-star at that point? What was that? What was that like? No, no, this is, this is relatively early. This right. was, so the, the cover date on this is January, 2007. And he would have also been doing Punisher, Fraction would have been doing Punisher War Journal. Um, and the only other thing he had done before either of those for us was X-Men Unlimited. Um, but then you also, at the same time, he's also working on Casanova, for for image so he's already developed like that that cool weird vibe that um he really like explores throughout his career um yeah it's freaking great also if anybody out there has never read the the order which is a like a an iron yes. man like i don't know side story almost it's so good yes the order is so good so that's barry kitson art right yeah barry kitson who i've been doing a first time reading all the transformers comics starting with like the stuff from the 80s, both the UK and the US, and seeing young Barry Kitson art in Marvel UK comics <laughs> blows my mind. It just, yeah. I'm having a blast with that. That's a, that's a really fun one. I just love the idea of like, of, of course there was an Iron Man TV show in the Marvel Universe, and somehow the actor who played Tony Stark becomes a superhero himself. <laughs> Why not? Yep. Well, Alan, I have a question for you. When you're looking back at... Uh... A book like this, or I guess when you're reading any comic more generally, obviously, as someone that I mentioned at the top of the show, obviously, you, you, you bring a critical eye to any piece of media that you might take a peek at. Is comics a thing that you can sort of separate yourself from and really just jump into the universe as a fan? Or does that part of your brain, you know, never get turned off? Well, I mean, it never gets turned off in the sense of, like, I'm looking for things that I'm enjoying. Mm -hmm. But I'm not necessarily always reading comics and thinking about, well, why is this working? Why, you know, mm -hmm. or what are the influences here? Sometimes they're, like, you know, they're screaming in your face. Like, if I'm reading Dan Slott, Silver Surfer, I'm just going over and over, Doctor Who, Doctor Who, Doctor Who. And that's, <laughs> you know, that's unavoidable. Or if you're reading, you know, just some really structurally audacious, you know work like the pizza dog issue of Hawkeye that Fraction and AHA did, you know, then you're like, okay, you're really admiring it and trying to pick it apart. But a lot of the times I just, I want a fun story out of it. I want to see the characters I like 
being used as well as they possibly can be. And this is easily like the best Danny Rand story mm-hmm. uh, that, that anybody's ever done. So to that degree, I never turn my brain off and I don't really, I don't know that I necessarily like that phrasing, but like there's the, the critical part of it, of it where I'm just analyzing everything. I'm at least able to slow my roll on that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, when I'm into something, when something's bad, then it turns on a little bit more. But it's the way that it's told that ultimately matters to me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So again, there have been lots of Iron Fist stories over the years. You know, I mean, they had explored the histories of the Iron Fist a little bit before in the original title. So it's not like this was entirely new. It's just the ways in which this creative team did it that made it special. Right. Yeah, I mean, the way they do it too is also like a slap in the face of reality to Danny. Uh, Danny Rand, who is the at the time of this book, the current uh, Iron Fist. And he's like, well, I thought there, you know, there are like a couple Iron Fist. Like at one point he might say like 12 or six or something like that. And and Orson Rendell's like, there are 66. He's like, here's a book. You're an yeah. idiot. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> like and like we get to meet, you know, four or so uh, of the other ones. And um, it reminds me of the similar time frame too is Jason Aaron's Ghost Rider run, where he really dives into the mythology of the Ghost Riders and and shows dozens of previous Ghost Riders. Um, again, I will always make sure to let people know that there was a uh, Depression era Ghost Rider named Knuckles O'Shaughnessy, who was <laughs> arguably the greatest there character. Is in comics <laughs> and there and there could be a danger in that like you know because you could run into something like uh the spider totems where it's like you're adding this history to a character who re- not only doesn't need it but it kind of works against what makes that character special but with iron fist since you already know going in that he is not the first of them and obviously why would this white blonde guy be the first iron fist it makes sense you can then add more and more they're just sort of deepening a thing that already existed Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've mentioned Wonder Man. Would you count Iron Fist among your Mount Rushmore of, of favorite characters? And, and did you have a lot of time with Iron Fist before reading this run? Like, and, you know, maybe who who's on that Mount Rushmore anyway? I mean, I, he would not be on my Mount Rushmore. I, I liked him, but I think I read those comics more for Luke Cage than for Danny. Um, so I read the tail end of the original Power Man and Iron Fist run. I then read the... Was it John Ostrander, I think, who did Heroes for Hire um, sometime in the 90s when they came back? So I would, I would periodically read it, but I certainly have not read everything featuring them. Um, but I always liked the idea of the character, and every now and then someone would land on something cool. And so he had just, I believe, recently been used in Daredevil around this time. He was filling in for Matt Murdock as Daredevil, right? Yeah. Um, so he, he'd be used well, but let me think. Mount Rushmore for me. It would be Wonder Man, and I guess he would be like the Teddy Roosevelt of the Mount Rushmore. The <laughs> Wait, like, I understand who the, why these others are here. Why is he here? Um, and it's because, you know, the artist just had affection for Teddy Roosevelt. Um, other three, God. I mean, it would have to be Cap. I know, I, I know I'd be, I'm being basic with that, but it's it's got to be Cap and Tony. And then the... Whew, I don't know. It's tough because there's a lot of Marvel characters, honestly. And Carol Danvers is another one where I kind of, I love them in team books and I never like them nearly as much in in their own books because it feels like they're they're, for, for a variety of reasons, they're sort of, they work better in a group than a solo. 
So, I don't know. Have you read the Brian Reed run or the Kelly Thompson run? Of, well, I've, of, of course Carol I read the Brian Reed run because who is her boyfriend in the Brian Reed run? Oh, it's right. Wonder Man. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Yes. Uh, I haven't read the, I've read like the first arc, I think, of the Kelly Thompson title. And I'm so, I've been waiting for them to stack up. What I found recently was I had sort of, about a year ago, I had finally caught up on every like title I'd meant to like read recently. And so everything was now month to month and I was reading the month to month and deciding that, yeah, I kind of like these better as arcs. And so that's one of those titles where I'm waiting to have like a, a year or two years worth of stuff to go back and read. Cause I really like Kelly's stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, there's, there's probably about 30 issues on Marvel unlimited. So a couple of arcs for you to dig into whenever you're ready. It's good. I like the, the Mount Rushmore sort of, thought behind all this this is uh it's fun i've never heard you talk about that before Tucker. you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go crazy here it's wonder man is not gonna be the teddy roosevelt but he's gonna be on the Mount rushmore you know who's gonna be the, the teddy roosevelt doreen green wow yes. squirrel girl Hell yeah mm-hmm. squirrel girl i love squirrel girl so much i'm so sad that ryan decided like he was done telling those stories because i could have i would have read that title forever yeah yeah uh Hey, you never know what the future holds. Uh, I'm sure we'll get more, you know, Squirrel Girl in some form or fashion in the future. And she's actually a character I prefer more in her own title versus in uh, Mm -hmm. a group setting. Like GLA, I think, was great and a lot of fun. But when you get to explore her as her own superhero, she's just everything. I remember reading was it was it New Avengers that she was in? She was in one of when there was like five different Avengers titles at once. I was reading that one, and you could tell that the it's sort of like when She Hulk is it was when John Byrne was writing She Hulk and Avengers at the same time that he was writing Sensational She Hulk. You could tell he was kind of holding himself back and not really like writing full She Hulk the way he wanted to. And it feels like that way when Doreen's in other books, because it's like you can't do the crazy stuff that's happening in her solo title. Also, I think when she was in Avengers, they hadn't Marvel. We hadn't fully figured out where she sits in the Marvel universe properly. And like she was a babysitter for Luke and Jessica's kid. But yeah. they aged her up there because there's like an interaction between Wolverine and Doreen in there Mm -hmm. that I was like, no, no, no. I, no, I wasn't I, even talking about the Bendis Avengers. It was it was U.S. Avengers. Oh, you the know. U.S. Avengers. I, mm. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I see what you mean. Yeah, but the, I love that book. I think they had a lot of really cool... Just putting Sunspot in charge of like... Yes. No, it's a those, fun book. It just feels yeah. like sort of they can't... Yeah. Because in her own title, she can beat anyone and she you know her solution is always to basically talk to you and empathize with you. That doesn't really work as well in a team book context. Yeah, it's a little tough. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, as someone who read a lot more of the Power Man and Iron Fist stuff, and maybe more Iron Fist, I I don't have a deep well of knowledge of of Danny Rand stories outside of this and after it. There's a there's a really fun run that um, Mike Perkins drew um, from a couple years back. But one of the things that I always think about when I think of this run is the naming of the martial arts moves. And yes. It feels so so crucial to this book and i don't i think of this as the originator of that but i may be wrong i don't know if you if that happened previously this is not something i remembered i I, like i've not exhaustively read all iron fist stories again i sort of picked it up around like the late 90s of that title you know if if not later than that um maybe around the time kurt Busiek was was wrapping up his time on it um 
But I don't remember. I remember seeing it in this book and thinking, "Oh, this is new and this is cool." And obviously, now it's something that they they do a lot. Mm-hmm. Alan, when you're you're reading this for the the first time and and having some history with the character, what do you think about sort of the revelations and and the the history stuff, and particularly like the newer characters that are. Um, introduced in this the older iron fists yeah um or or even character like uh like davos who you know comes back in this in a really really cool creepy way well it's interesting because if you think about it like and this is a this is an issue that people have raised about danny as a character it's like danny was created in the early 70s at a time when like martial arts was was a big fad and sort of in through through the the lens of history, you can look at him as sort of an appropriating kind of character. Here's, you know, this wealthy white waspy guy who masters an Eastern art form and sort of takes it for himself. And, you know, once once Shang-Chi is sort of written out of of Marvel mainstream for a long time, he is Marvel martial arts uh, as far as it goes. And so the idea that then Brubaker and Fraction introduced the previous Iron Fist and he's also a white American, you would think, oh, well, that's uh, that. I don't know that that's the choice I would have made, but I think that Orson Randall really works well. A, because he, I think he's meant to echo Danny in a lot of ways. And obviously he turns out to be kind of crucial to Danny's origins, like not only where his father literally got the name, but where they got the family fortune and all of that. But then you use him as a gateway to revisit all of these other earlier Iron Fists and you begin to understand what a big deal it was for these two characters in particular to come there and to seize the mantle and what a shock to the system it was. And especially what a shock to the system it was to Davos, who is used so well throughout this book. And you're right, he is super creepy with the, absorbing the crane women. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, 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 to go deeper on that, is is the character work what you enjoy most about about this about this arc and about this run in general is that what brings it to us talking about it today can you like sum up what um when you're looking back over the decades that you've been reading marvel comics what made this be the one that you that you pick for for our chat today i mean i think it's the character work is good and i think like brubaker and fraction came up with a take on danny that i'm not sure i had seen before like he feels He's not just generic rich superhero. And but but at the same time, they're sort of using his wealth as one of his superpowers. There's the scene where he and Orson are sort of escaping um, you know, the assassin the Hydra assassins, and Danny explains, like, I own more real estate in Manhattan than anybody else because like I don't fly, so I need an easy way to get from place to place. So all of these buildings are mine. That's really clever. But he also just he comes across as like he feels vivid in a way that I don't remember him being in in the previous stories I'd read, where, again, he was mainly just Luke's straight man. And here, Luke is still here sometimes, and he's very funny when he's here, but, like, Danny is allowed to be funny, and Danny is allowed to be fallible and complex and exciting, and he gets a bunch of big hero moments, including, like, it's just this... Uh, without spoiling it for people who have only read this first arc so far... There's a bit where Danny has to deal with a train and it's one of my just favorite bits of comic book action ever. It look it's just so beautiful and so coolly executed. 
And I think like in terms of the ultimate appeal to me, I think it's definitely the action, you know, the aha art especially is just dynamite and jaw dropping. It's the scope of it, the both historical, but also the fantasy elements, the blending of like, you can tell that Brubaker obviously, you know, even if you'd never read anything else he'd done, you could tell how much he loves Pulp Fiction. And so you have Orson Randall as a throwback to Doc Savage and those kinds of classic pulp heroes who all travel around with like an assortment of colorful sidekicks. Um, and so when you when you get to that part of the story, that's really fun. Uh, and so you're blending that with a lot of things that are sort of endemic to the Iron Fist mythology and the heart of the dragon um, and everything else. And you you get to meet eventually Iron Fist equivalent in the other cities of heaven and you have the tournament they're all really exciting. It's just, it's so cool. Like it's an, it's a book packed with ideas more than anything else that excites me about it. Like it's fun to read, but there's always something new coming up and something unexpected. And every character feels like you could just turn them into like the lead of their own book and it would be great. Yeah. I mean, God bless them for giving us fat Cobra. Uh, fat Cobra. <laughs> fat Cobra. I is love fat Cobra. But, you know, we get Fat Cobra and Bride of Nine Spiders and like those immortal cities. It it rules. But I, I, I'm so glad you brought up the the train sequence in this issue where they go uh, sort of underground. And there's this whole area that I'm like, we could have explored this 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 area with these pneumatic train systems and all this cool stuff. But there's a there's a giant fight with uh, with Hydra. And there's a three panel sequence where Dina yeah. kicks a guy into the train and you got two Hydra guys. Um, and just the the storytelling that that David Aha does from watching people, you watch the the Hydra guys look at Danny, look at their their like quote unquote coworker crushing through yeah. the train, and then looking down like, oh no, it's so well done, <laughs> it's so beautifully paced, and so yeah. just spectacular. But it's like you said, like we get a little taste of the underground city, and Orson talks about his how his father built a whole like kingdom of hypothetical science i think that's the phrase <laughs> but we don't get much more than that i would read a whole other book just about like you know randall senior's kingdom of hypothetical science come on i think that that totally gets at something that i was super drawn to when reading this, this is my first time reading these these this this first oh, art really? yeah oh wow uh, yeah oh you've great. got so much good stuff in front of you then I'm, yeah, yeah I, i'm i'm so excited and and that's that sort of gets to the heart of it and what was so exciting about it to me and it i don't know i think it shares that that sort of obvious like you know street lamp noir influence of like daredevil but it's that broader like tonal feeling that you get when you're reading it that you're just kind of peeking at one little part of the world at any given time and um you know i just think it shapes this corner of the marvel universe so beautifully and I don't know, just in a way, in, in in a color, in a in a darkness, in just that tonal feeling that I really, really, really loved. And one of the things that was funny about rereading it this time, because I hadn't done it in a few years, was I'd forgotten that this is rooted in like post-Civil War Marvel mm -hmm. time. Because there's some tension between Danny and Misty Knight and Colleen Wing, because they are they've joined the pro-registration forces. And I was reading it to my son who has not read uh Civil War. And so it should be sort of like tricky for him to be able to to keep track of this. And it wasn't like it's sort of it's it's very elegantly done. Like you get just enough to know that he Danny is beefing with his ex-girlfriend and, and, and his buddy Colleen. And that's it. And it's there's some contextual stuff there, but it's really not necessary at all to be able to follow the book. 
that's all true. I'm glad you brought it up. But also there's a moment you, you can see that like the, the changes of civil war, like happening off pages because at yeah. the beginning they're all like Danny and Luke are, are sort of like, man, what the hell are Misty and Colleen doing? And then like three issues later, Dan, uh, Luke is flanked by Misty and Colleen again. Everything is fine. And like the, the whole, they're heroes for hire for the government is like things have changed. I was reading that. I was like, man, that just brought me back to the, the crossover of it all. So yeah, it, that stuff is kind of weird. We don't really get, I guess that would the equivalent in, in television sort of be more like top timely right. references and stuff like that, that sort of root you in when a show was. I mean, it varies. You don't see really cr- outside of like Joe's on the CW. You don't see a lot of, and I guess the Chicago shows and the FBI, anything Dick Wolf does, you know, <laughs> will have crossovers these days, but you don't see him as much. That is a fun thing sometimes. It's like you're watching, you know, my daughter and I, we watched all of Cheers early in the pandemic, for instance. And most of it still plays beautifully now, but every now and then there will be like a very topical reference. You know, (laughs) Tip O'Neill comes into the bar or something like that. And I'm like, so this man was the Speaker of the House (laughs) at this time. You know, and then you have something like Murphy Brown, which was a great show, but like every third punchline was, you know... You know, I just, you know, ran into Ed Meese in the parking lot and he was a jerk. Ha 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 ha. Um, and so like that, I, I can't even imagine attempting to to watch something like that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it varies. I think topical references are probably the, the right comparison. Mm-hmm. Can I get super TV nerdy here for a second? Please. Okay. So I'm old enough to remember when crossovers were a much more regular thing. Simon I'm also there. Yes. I'm therefore also old enough to remember what would happen when these shows that had done crossovers wound up in rerun syndication away from the things they had crossed over with. So, for instance, uh, <laughs> Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley did a couple of crossovers because they're both Gary Marshall shows and one's a spinoff of another. And there's a... I forget the order of it, but there's a storyline where, like, Richie, Fonzie, Laverne, and Shirley are at, like, some Wild West uh, theme park or something. I don't even remember. <laughs> But, like, somebody gets kidnapped, and there's a whole cliffhanger, and so it jumps from one show to the other show. And when you watch them in syndication, suddenly the first part of it, they, like, filmed an extra scene to, ex- like, with the two main characters explaining all the stuff that happened off camera. It's like, oh, it's okay, we're fine, you know, you don't need to worry about that, you know, it's, it's not really a to be continued, it's okay. And there was a show I liked in the 80s called The Fall Guy with Lee Majors as a bounty hunter slash stuntman because, again, it always comes back to, you know, Wonder Man, who was a stuntman at the time. And The Fall Guy did a crossover with some ABC hospital drama called Trauma Center, and it it ran for... It ran from September 1983 to December 1983. It did not even make it a full season. <laughs> Lou Ferrigno was on it as an ambulance driver, and that's why I watched it, because Lou Ferrigno had been the Incredible Hulk. Again, I'm very easy to get sucked into things. So they do a crossover, and then the the hospital drama gets canceled after a season. Fall Guy keeps going. Fall Guy's in syndication, and again, it's a two-parter, and you watch the Fall Guy in rerun syndication, and, you know, Lee Majors and his sidekick are just at the very end of the episode saying, wow, think about all these adventures we had with these hospital folks. Wasn't it great? You know, the end. I love that stuff. It's right. ridiculous. <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen here, folks. 
Alan Seppenwall says that the Immortal Iron Fist is a good read. So believe him. Oh, it's him. so good. It's so good. <laughs> believe now him just, just, that. just make sure, especially if you're reading it on the app, that you look up the reading order because yeah. there's several like specials and annuals that tie in and you want to read them at the right moments for that, for that particular story. I mean, you could still just read issues one to 16 and get it all, but your, your enjoyment will be greatly enhanced if you see the other stuff in the right order. Yeah. Those, those dive into the other iron fists and, and sort of the lore and the history of everything. And it really is such a, a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. I was so, I'm so happy. And it's, it, it's one of those that feels still feel super modern. Like mm. I could, I could have come on here and just been like, you know, we are going to talk about, you know, uh, West coast Avengers one to four or something, or, you know, something else from my childhood that I really liked that would have felt dated. And this, you know, is 15 years old and could have, you know, come out today. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for, for lending your thoughts. Thank you for sharing all of this. Really, really appreciate it. It's been great. Tucker, Ryan, this, this was awesome. I'm happy to come back on anytime. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we've got to get that Wonder Man chat in yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once more to Alan Seppenwall for joining us on the show. So much fun to talk to him and really, really great to get his unique perspective on these things. You know, he has uh, such a fascinating angle on a story like this as a comic book lover, as a, uh, as a critic, as a consumer of media at large. Uh, so it was a really, really fun time to get to talk to him about this. And look, if anything, it was just a great excuse to go and read a great comic. Heck yeah. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, and Jasmine Estrada. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And Tucker, do you remember the day when we were back in the office and Brad came in running around and said, guys, 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 I'm the new Iron Fist. I did it. And we were like, yes, how did you do it? He's like, I plunged my fist into the heart of Shallow, the the undying dragon. (laughs) And we're like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah. I was like, that was a cake in the break room. Uh, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. he was like, yeah. And then I ate it. (laughs) Yep. He had like a he had a hoodie that he sort of tied around the top half of his head, and he was like, "Look, look, guys!" And we we're like, "No, no, no, Brad, take it off. We want to see your gorgeous mane." Yeah, and then <laughs> it was really weird because he just vomited all over everything. Yeah, he, he started bleeding out of his eyes. It was look, Classic it became an Brad. HR issue. Yeah. yeah, all right, good old Brad. <laughs> I'm Ryan. <laughs> and I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. <laughs> your universe. Ha, ha, ha.